How do you know when you're on the right path in life? Often life is portrayed as a walk in scripture. How do you know when you're walking in the right way? How do you know when you're thinking clearly about a particular issue or when you've made the right judgment about another person? I'll put it another way. Who is there in your life who serves as a check for the way you think about life? When we were very young, we had our parents to serve as a check to our wild thoughts and inclinations. No, running in the house with scissors is not safe. No, jumping off that large boulder is not a good idea. No, playing with a squirrel that's foaming at the mouth is not a good idea. As we get older, we tend to lean more on our peers and friends, perhaps a significant other or a professional, a doctor, a lawyer, a counselor. But how do you know that that person knows what's right? I mean, do they really know the whole issue? Do they know the other side of the story? Do they have all the facts? If it involves another person, do they know the other person's character and their perspective? And will this person you go to for counsel actually tell you when you're wrong? Do you have that kind of relationship with them? In theology, we discuss the attribute of God's omniscience. The word omniscience is from the Latin. There are two different terms there, omni meaning all and the second sire meaning to know. In other words, we use this word to describe the fact that God knows all. He knows everything that a being with his attributes should know. And because he is perfect, he knows everything in the fullest possible way. Now, that's putting the matter simplistically. Of course, if you were to read a systematic theology on the omniscience of God, you would see quite a bit more discussion. Um, We're not going to get into all the nitty-gritty details of the omniscience of God. Um, You can read about that a little bit later on. But we know that this is true. We do know that God knows all. Scripture affirms this in many different ways. He knows everyone and everything in his creation. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Psalm chapter 33 verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth He who fashions the hearts of them all, he understands all their works. By his knowledge, he created, Jeremiah 51, 15. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. Psalm 147, 4 through 5. He counts the number of the stars. He gives them names. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Therefore, he knows all things, including all of our ways, whether they are good or evil. Proverbs twenty four twelve. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps our soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Isaiah twenty nine fifteen. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Of course, by this knowledge, God will judge all of humanity, both believers and unbelievers. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 25, 31. 
But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he goes on a little bit later and says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And as you read through that passage, you see that the Lord has seen their works. He's seen their actions. He knows how they've conducted themselves in life, and he separates them accordingly. The Lord, our God, is all-knowing. He knows all, he sees all, he has created all, thus he knows all intimately and thoroughly, and thus he will judge all, knowing their works, on the basis of the standard that he's determined. In Acts 17, Paul says that God has fixed a day in which he will do this, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that is true, but sometimes, of course, we hold a theological position to be true as a statement of fact, but fail to live like it. If it is true that God knows all, then when we're faced with a difficult situation or decision, should we not turn to him first to examine our hearts? Should we not turn to him when, our, when we need our motives tested? We're quick to judge the motives of others and to identify the motives of others. But do we ever seek to have our motives tested by the Lord? Should we not turn to him to determine if we are judging others correctly? Again, as we continue in our series in the psalm this morning, this is where the rubber meets the road with Psalm 139. We love this psalm. Many have memorized whole or various portions of the psalm to comfort their hearts in affliction with the emphasis that it has on the omniscience of God. But the real question is, do we practice this psalm? If you haven't turned to Psalm 139, go ahead and turn there. The message of this psalm is very simple. The Lord's thorough knowledge of all things, all things including us, should both comfort and motivate us to seek him for accountability as we need discernment for life. I'll say that again. The Lord's thorough knowledge of all things should both comfort and motivate us to seek him for accountability as we need discernment in life. Now, this psalm has been divided in a number of different ways, usually with four sections. I see two major movements of thoughts, and my outline is going to reflect that. In verses 1 through 18, that's a large section, we'll see that we can take comfort in the omniscience of God. And in verses 19 to 24, we'll see that we should seek counsel from the omniscient God. We take comfort in his omniscience, and we should seek counsel from his omniscience. Let's take a moment to pray together, and then we'll get into the passage. Once again, Father, we thank you for this day, and thank you for your word, which is true. We thank you that you sanctify us by your truth, as Jesus said. And we pray that you would do that this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let's look at that first point again in verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to read that section. Um, well, I guess, yeah, I'll go ahead and read through the whole passage here just so that we have that for context. Psalm 139, starting at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before our word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts, O God? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of bloodshed, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate, hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Well, again, we'll start looking at that first section, verses 1 through 18. And again there, we see that we can take comfort in the omniscience of God. That's David's first point in this section. This psalm is not meant to be read like a systematic theology on the point of God's omniscience. This is simply David reflecting on that theological truth as it related to his life. He's thinking about the God who is and how this same God relates to him. He's acknowledging who God is in relation to him. As his maker, God knows him thoroughly. And as he's reflecting on this truth, he's simply stating it back to God in the form of prayer. In verse 1, David expresses the fact that the Lord has a thorough knowledge of him. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. We could stop there. This verse is kind of a summary statement of this first section. The verb that we have translated here, search, has the intensity of a court examination. This is akin to Judge Amy Coney Barrett being examined and questioned as she's being nominated for the Supreme Court. This is an invasive surgical procedure intended to find the source of an illness. This is the strain of coronavirus under a, an electron microscope as we're trying to find a vaccine, right? This is a thorough searching. The idea behind the verb known is what we would typically expect to see. It involves intimate knowledge, a relational knowledge. He says, you have searched me and known me. The Lord has already done this. It's a done deal. There's nothing more that needs to be done for the Lord to know him better because the Lord knows it already. David says, in effect, Lord, you've put me under such scrutiny. You have thoroughly examined me to the degree that you have come to know me intimately and completely. 
He goes on to flesh out this idea of the Lord's intimate and complete knowledge in the next 17 verses. Again, in verse 1, he expressed the Lord's thorough knowledge. In 2 through 17, he explains it, and he emphasizes three different aspects of his life and existence in this next section. And after 2 to 3 of the aspects, he utters a word of praise to the Lord. Let me show you what I mean. In verses 2 through 5, he acknowledges that the Lord knows him inwardly meaning the Lord knows his inner person. And then at the end of that, in verse 5, he gives a word of praise to the Lord. In verses 7 through 12, he acknowledges that the Lord sees him externally, meaning the Lord sees him wherever he goes. Then he follows that up in verses 13 through 16, acknowledging that the Lord has created him wonderfully. And again, he extols the Lord in verses 17 through 18. The Lord knows him inwardly, sees him externally, has created him wonderfully. That the Lord knows him inwardly. Look again at verses 2 through 5 in the text. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. The focus here seems to be on David's innermost being, his inner person. He mentions his thoughts, his ways, His words, words that are uttered only in the mind, not from the tongue, these are intangible things. And he uses tangible ideas to express these intangible concepts. This is Hebrew poetry. So, for example, in verse 2, the idea of sitting down and rising up is explained by the term in the second half of the line, thoughts from afar. In other words, the Lord knows David's thoughts to the degree that someone would know when you sit down and rise up if they were just watching you all day. We see those spy movies when folks are tasked with finding a person of interest. They're usually sitting in some shady-looking van, and they have like you know the little spy cameras out, and they're listening in, or they're sitting in some shady-looking apartment, and they have you know the little spyglass, and are looking in on the other person to see when they sit down and rise up, when they go in and go out. David says, "This is how familiar the Lord is with his thoughts." Similarly, in verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Certainly, this could apply to a physical path and physically lying down. But I think, again, the emphasis is on his inward being. You know the way that I think, again, to the same degree that someone watching me would know my path when I lie my head down. You know how I think about life. You know my considerations. You know the ups and downs of my thought processes. You know the highs and lows. When you're floating on cloud nine because something wonderful has happened in life, as well as when you're in the deepest depths of depression, the Lord knows. He sees those thoughts. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Again, he's talking about the Lord's knowledge of his innermost being. Even before he utters a word, the Lord knows it. In the deep recesses of his mind, before the signal is sent from our brains, to the synapses that will ultimately give movement to our jaw muscles, our tongues, our cheeks, our lips. Before that split second of time that elapses between our thought and the expression of that thought with our lips, the Lord knows it. He's already seen it. He's already heard it. This is complete knowledge, exhaustive knowledge. David says, you know it all together. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Again, using that 
tangible idea to express an intangible truth. The Lord is not laying a physical hand upon our person. But this idea of him hemming us in behind and before as if we're in battle and the enemy has cut us off, having surrounded us behind and before, leaving us nowhere to go. He says, Lord, you have me on lockdown. You know me that well. There's no straight thought in my mind that you've not touched first. And don't miss that very personal language. Though we're not talking about a physical hand, the mention of him laying his hand upon David is instructive. It's not as if the Lord knows our thoughts from afar and that he's so disgusted by them he stays away. But no, the Lord knows our thoughts. He sees our thoughts. He doesn't have to be physically close to us, but he knows us so intimately and so well that it's as if he keeps his hand resting on our shoulder the whole time. He knows us that well. You know me inwardly. You know me certainly better than anyone else, perhaps better than myself. I cannot even fathom this truth. David extols in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. He's like, I can't even wrap my mind around that. Even though you know me so well, you know every one of my thoughts. I cannot understand it. I cannot fully fathom it. It's just too much. It's too great. It's too wonderful. Do you think about that often? Do you think about the fact that the Lord knows the inner you? The you that you will be totally embarrassed for anyone else to know? The you that you hope never shows up on the 6 o'clock news? The you whose inner thoughts you keep on lockdown for fear that your family would have you committed? The inner you. Again, the you, you keep secret from everyone who knows you best, but you cannot hide from the Lord. The Lord knows you. And though your blood relatives and, again, your most intimate friends would probably disown you for some of the secret thoughts that you've had over the course of your life, the Lord never would. Again, he stays close enough to touch. And he does so all as a result of his redemptive work in Christ. He knew all of those things about you, all of those evil, wicked thoughts. He knew. And in spite of that, he sent the Lord Jesus to die for you and for me. And in case we think that the thoughts of our hearts are insignificant, Paul says that this is part of what makes us or makes the unbelieving world children of wrath in Ephesians chapter 2. There he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And he says, we're by nature children of wrath, but God. But God being rich in mercy. But God because of the great love with which he loved us. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Pride, lust, jealousy, anger, malice, murderous thoughts. The Lord knows it all about you. And yet he still made a way for your salvation. Moving on, the Lord knows us inwardly, but the Lord also sees us externally. After contemplating the fact that the Lord knows the inner man, his inner thought patterns, his highs and lows, he considers whether or not it would even make a difference where he goes in the world. Look at verses 7 through 12 again. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Now this is a hypothetical question that David is posing here. Knowing what was stated previously, that the Lord's knowledge of his inner person is so thorough and intimate, David already knows the answer to this question. Where shall I go from your spirit, and where shall I flee from your presence? The answer is obviously nowhere. If the Lord knows you so thoroughly and intimately in your innermost being, there's nowhere you could hide from him that he would not see. There's nowhere you could physically go that the penetrating gaze of his spirit would not find you. Now, he uses this technique that we've seen in other psalms, a merism, using two opposing parts to express the whole. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And clearly, anything in between. I could go as high or as low as I could into the earth, but the Lord is still there. He's everywhere present. He goes on in verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold of me. The directional markers here are from east and west. Again, the idea is that the wings of the morning, the sun rises in the east, and the reference to the sea in Israel, if you think about where Israel is on the map, the sea is to their west. So from the east to the west, it doesn't matter how far I go, the Lord is still there. And of course, again, everything in between. And he says, it doesn't matter where I go, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Again, this is very personal language here. We see the repetition of this idea of a hand being upon us. Because the Lord is close, he's near. He says, your hand, your right hand, the right hand is always indicative of power. Your mighty right hand, your powerful outstretched arm will uphold me no matter where I go. Again, don't miss this. The Lord knows this so well that there isn't a single place that we could go in all of his creation where he would not fix his gaze. More than that, where he would not rest his almighty hand upon us and where he would not continue to uphold us. Dr. Stephen Lawson, in commenting on the truth of the omnipresence of God, said this, quote, The omnipresence of God means that there is no place within the universe where God is excluded or barred. Moreover, he went on to comment, and I think this is helpful for us to consider. He says, quote, God is always ever-present with the fullness of all that he is, Meaning that God is present with us. When God is present with us, he's not half there. Sometimes when we're with people, maybe we go out, we're watching a movie. Um, maybe we're hanging out with people over their house. We're just not always there. Sometimes our minds are preoccupied. Even this morning, most of you guys were preoccupied with how cold it was in here. Or something else. Maybe you were thinking about what happened over the past week. Maybe you're thinking about something you need to do this next week upcoming. But you probably weren't all here. It happens to all of us. But it never happens to the Lord. Because when he's with you, he's with you. He's all in. He is tuned in. He's engaged. He has his hand upon you. 
he upholds you. And there's nowhere that you could go. There's nothing that could happen in your life where his hand wouldn't continue to rest upon you. That's John chapter 10. Jesus says, no one's greater than the Father. No one can pluck you from the Father's hand. That's the truth we can take to the bank. David goes on. Because sometimes we do feel like, even though we may believe this truth that God is always with us, that his hand is always upon us, sometimes we feel like he's not. Sometimes we feel like he has forsaken us. Sometimes we feel like no one can see us, no one knows where we are, no one knows how we're struggling. Sometimes it feels like all is dark around us. David expresses that in the next couple of verses. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, we could take this reference to the darkness, mean that there is potentially some measure of sin involved, but I don't think so. Again, he's talking hypothetically, pondering if there's somewhere that he could possibly go away from the Lord. doesn't matter how high I go, how high I go doesn't matter how low I go, doesn't matter if I go for the east or the west, doesn't matter if it's bright as day or if it's dark as night, the Lord still sees me, he's still with me. But sometimes we feel as if we're in a dark place. We may literally be in a dark place, some people just don't like the dark. That's not only something that children have a problem with. The point is, here is that it still wouldn't matter. Whether you're actually in the dark or whether you feel like you're in the dark or physically far away from safety, the Lord is still with you. He says, darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. If this were about sin, he wouldn't make such a comment. But this is about where we are and how we feel about where we are. We may feel in the dark, but the careful, loving gaze of the Lord is never inhibited by that. The Lord is not held back by how we feel about a situation. The Lord is not held back by our circumstances. His loving gaze, his protective grip is always there. And you may have felt that way before, that no one knows your situation. No one knows how the situation makes you feel. Perhaps you feel like you cannot find your way out. You're completely overwhelmed by your experience. I think that has to be one of the most discouraging parts of some of the trials that we endure when we think or feel that we're in the dark and no one sees and no one knows. Again, we have to trust that the Lord does know. I read from Isaiah chapter 40 earlier, and that's kind of what um, Israel was thinking. That's how, what Israel was feeling when they were in the exile, that the Lord does not see. The Lord does not hear us. And what did Isaiah respond? Have you not seen, have you not heard the everlasting God? The Lord does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. And those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength because the Lord is with them and he upholds them. The Lord knows us inwardly. He sees us externally. He's created us wonderfully. Look at verses 13 through 16. 
for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now I'll say just as... I said earlier that um, this text was not intended to be read as a systematic theology on the omnipresence of God. This passage of scripture was also not intended to be read as a text on pro-life views, right? To substantiate pro-life views. Even though that's not the purpose of this passage, it certainly does support it. And the message of this section reminds us that God made us, that he formed us in the womb. And therefore he knew us as intimately before birth, as he does after birth. As thoroughly and completely as he knows us, as we're walking about on the face of his earth today, he knew us even while we were in the womb. Again, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, he goes on. The creation of life within the womb is not accidental. It's not by the means or the will or strength of man. It's not by means of medical precision, no matter how advanced our technology becomes. If the Lord doesn't will, life shall not enter the womb and life shall not leave the womb. David says, Lord, you made me and I praise you for that. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't only praise the Lord for forming him in the womb. He also praised the Lord for forming his days post the womb. Again, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, even as the Lord gazed upon our unformed substance, he gazed upon the child developing in the womb, every one of their days were written in the book of life. Even then. The Lord sees and knows each of our days from start to finish. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing takes him off guard. The Lord is intimately acquainted with all of our days as much as he's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. And he is at work with his almighty hand leading us through each of those days. One author says it this way, God not only sees the invisible and penetrates the inaccessible, but is operative there, the author of every detail of my being. We'll sing in a little while, whatever my God ordains is right. How can we sing that song? We can sing that song because we know that God knows each one of our days. He has them written in his book. He knows each one of our days. He sees us wherever we go. He's promised to uphold us and knows us intimately, so knows exactly what we need when we need it. Whatever my God ordains is right. I will be still in all he does and follow where he guides. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. He will not deceive me. He will not leave me. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. He holds me that I shall not fall. Do you hear the confidence in those words? That's the kind of confidence that each one of us has. Because the Lord knows us. Because he seeds us. Because he upholds us. No matter what. And we see that these truths brought David great comfort 
The knowledge of the omniscience of God, that God knows him intimately and completely, that God knows all things perfectly and has promised to be with us completely, moves David to praise once again, verses 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts of me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I mentioned this earlier, but I think that one of the greatest sources of discouragement for us is the thought that the Lord is not near, that he doesn't see us. And often the reason why we think that's true of the Lord is because we tend to think that the Lord only thinks of us as much as we think of him. Because we tend to think that he only thinks of us occasionally when certain things happen in our life, when we go to church, or when we see our Bible sitting on the table. That's when we think about God. Or when we see another fellow believer, that's when we think about God. But sometimes as we're going throughout the course of our day, we are so engaged in what we're doing with our hands or whatever it might be that we neglect thinking about God. I know that's true of me. And I say that to my shame. I say that to our shame. But that's not true of God. He doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have attention deficit disorder. Right? He knows how to focus in. He knows who to focus in on. He sees us. He knows us. His loving, protective gaze is ever present with us. It's interesting that we struggle so much in the way we think about the Lord when our spiritual growth is directly related to the time and effectiveness of our thoughts of him. Paul mentions this in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. He says keep seeking the things that are above. Set your minds on the things above. Do we do that? Do we persistently, regularly, throughout the course of the day, keep reorienting our thoughts to the things that are above. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to have our mind set on the mercies of God. Meditating on the mercies of God, the goodness of God, in order to have our minds renewed and transformed. Peter says it very simply, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Grow, how? In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you grow. In the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, you won't be growing. And if you're not constantly reorienting your mind towards who he is, being grounded in who he is here, then certainly you're going to be thinking about him in the same way you think about anyone else. You're going to be thinking about him in the same way that you think, which doesn't honor him at all. David talks about the many thoughts that the Lord has of him. How many are your thoughts of the Lord? 
And are they right thoughts? How much time do we actually spend in the word of God considering the personing of God? Again, not just looking for something that will make you feel good about yourself, but something that will expand your thinking about the greatness of God. How often do you seek that from his word? We need to stay grounded in who he is so that we can remember that he is always with us, that he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Because we can forget that as we're going about our days. If you have nothing to consider this week, consider this from Psalm 139, that the thoughts of the Lord about you are many. You're always on his mind. And I don't say that in a new age sort of Jesus is my lovesick genie in a bottle kind of way. But I say that because it's true. Because the Lord's thoughts of you are many. That's what David is saying right here. He knows you, the real you. He created you in the womb. Even from the womb, he knew the very number of your days. He knows your thoughts. He knows them before they reach your lip. There's nowhere in all of his creation that you could go that you'd be hidden from him. Even the darkness is as light to him. He is the God who sees and sees you even in your darkest hour. And all of that, in spite of all your perfections, his hand is upon you. He's promised to uphold you. You'll never fall from his gaze. You'll never fall from his grip. This is comforting for the believer. For the unbeliever, not so. The unbeliever shudders at the thoughtful, watchful gaze of the Lord. The unbelieving world, our society, seems to be on the forefront of the race. There are many nations going before us. But our society epitomizes the spirit of Psalm 2. They said, let us cast their fetters away. They want to get as far away from the Lord as possible. They want nothing to do with the Lord. They want nothing to do with his word. The thought that someone has authority over them, to watch over them with judgmental eyes, to watch over their thoughts, their words, their deeds, is utterly incomprehensible to the world. But as I mentioned earlier, the Lord has fixed the day in which he will judge the world through righteousness. And he's appointed one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one for that purpose. And anyone who is not in him, again, united with him by faith, as we said from Ephesians 2, will be judged by him to see whether or not they measure up to his righteous standard. Having kept all the law of his father as he walked on the face of the earth, and since no one will measure up to that standard, if we've not taken refuge in him, again, being united with him by faith, and will face his wrath for all eternity when the judge returns. Well, how you respond to the Lord, knowing that the Lord knows all, everything about you speaks volumes for your relationship with him. The unbeliever rejects and runs away from the omniscience of God. The believer takes refuge and revels in the omniscient of God. Now, I said a little bit earlier, often when we think of Psalm 139, we think of this first section of the psalm and the greatness of the theology of the omnipresence of God. We take comfort in knowing that the Lord our God knows us intimately, but the psalm doesn't stop there. We have a few more verses to go. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, a psalm has a message that's twofold. First, we take comfort in the Lord's omniscience, but second, we seek counsel from the omniscient God. That's what the last five verses is all about and really what this whole psalm is driving at. Look at those with me. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of bloodshed, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. 
and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, verses 19 to 22 seem like an abrupt shift in what David has been focusing on up until this point. He's been meditating on the truth of God's omniscience, praying back to the Lord with gratitude and joy that the Lord knows him so well. And then we dive right into what seems to be just a complete and utter rejection of wicked people. Lord, I thank you that you know me so well, that you know me so intimately. Slay the wicked. It's kind of how we, we move through the song. Where is that coming from? Well, that's why I see these last verses as a whole. He ultimately brings the whole psalm full circle, repeating the same ideas in the beginning in verse 23. He says, search me again and know me. The difference there at the end is that it's not a statement of fact as much as a request. He's not saying again that God has searched me, but he's asking for God to search him and test him. But again, why? I'm going to try to tie this up a bit. Verses 1 through 18 again, Lord, you know me. You know me intimately. You know me fully. You're with me. I take comfort in that truth. But there are some people in the world who are not with you. There are some people in the world who are not for you, and their very existence troubles me. Lord, I wish they would just depart from me. They speak evil against you. They take your name in vain. You know that I hate them, and you know that I loathe them. I hate them with a complete hatred. In his heart of hearts, in the depths of his soul, he has a pure, burning hatred for the wicked. They are his enemies. This is how he thinks about them. This is how he feels about them. He's continuing in prayer, expressing this truth to the Lord, but he doesn't stop there. Again, Lord, you know me best. You know me fully. You made me. You knew all of my days, including these evil-filled days where the wicked are tormenting me. You knew each one of them. You know how I feel about them. Search me. Try my thoughts. If there's any grievous way in me, lead me in the everlasting way. If my thoughts about these people are wrong, Lord, correct them. If my thoughts about this situation is wrong, Lord, correct it. If my desires here are wrong, if they actually have a cause to persecute me, Lord, correct it. Do you hear the plea? If I'm evaluating them incorrectly, Lord, change my heart and lead me in the everlasting way. I asked you at the beginning, how do you know when you're on the right track? How do you know when you made the right decision? How do you know when you judge someone else rightly? Again, typically we go to family, we go to friends, perhaps we go to some professional, but how often do we go to the Lord? We probably always go to the Lord for help when we feel the wicked closing in on us. We probably always go to the Lord when we need wisdom to navigate through a difficult situation or to deal with a difficult person. We certainly go to the Lord when we want relief from the issue. But how often do we go to the Lord and ask him plainly, Lord, am I thinking rightly about this situation? Am I judging this person correctly? Have I properly evaluated their motives when I've made my judgments? Am I even right in this situation? Lord, check my heart. I'm going to put some flesh on this. In a prior ministry leadership situation, I experienced a great deal of hurt from some folks who were involved. Much of it stemmed from a misunderstanding of some statements that I made surrounding a change a certain leader was making that would impact the whole leadership team. The leader essentially said it had to be this way because he said so. And I said, you can't just tell people to change something that's going to impact their whole life without having some discussion around it. That didn't go over so well. Within a span of hours, overnight, unbeknownst to me, multiple people were consulted who were not directly involved. Additional testimony was brought to bear to suggest that I believe something 
labeled as dangerous and detrimental to the leadership team, and I was asked to step down from the leadership role. No one came to me personally. No one offered me an opportunity to discuss it further. It was actually communicated through email, which was very hurtful. The whole situation was hurtful to me. It was troubling to me, difficult to endure. I sought out a means to express myself more clearly to avoid being forced out, went through a great measure of scrutiny so as not to impact, since this was a a church role, I didn't want to impact the church in any greater way. And we were able to come to resolution, which is good. I'd like to say that I was spiritually mature enough to have a good attitude about the situation after, but I was not. My thoughts about some of the folks involved in the situation in general were not good for some time. I was angry, hurt, and just confused about how everything went down. But what does that have to do with this passage? The more I thought about the situation and the people involved, the more angry I would become at them, and the more convicted I became about my anger, ultimately. I would be reminded of the story of Jonah. Towards the end of the book, God asked Jonah plainly, do you have a right to be angry? And the answer for Jonah, as much as the answer was for me, was no. In that text, God positioned himself as the Lord over the Ninevites, as much as he is Lord over Jonah and his people. And there was a simple fact that Jonah had sinned, just like I have sinned. And the Lord is patient with me and gentle with me, and so I need to be the same way with others. Or there are other passages of Scripture that the Lord used to convict me, just to remind me that I shouldn't go on passing judgment before the time, and the reality is that I don't know all of people's motives. And my conduct was not 100% perfect, and so I needed to be humble about that. But sometimes in times of conflict, we kind of get stuck with just wanting to be right. We want to be vindicated, so we often rush to judgment about the other person's motives, their heart. We're quick to label them as wrong, evil, hateful. We're quick to think of all the reasons why the Lord should rain down brimstone on them. I'm being a little dramatic with that, but you guys know what I mean. And you know what else we do? We often go to other people, to our friends, to explain our plight, to tell our side of the story. Perhaps we give lip service to the fact that there is another side of the story. But when we go to our allies, what we really want is for someone to tell us that we're right and the other person is wrong. We want someone to affirm us in our thinking. Our rights have been hindered. Our pride has been injured. Our sense of justice thrown off balance. We deserve a life of comfort and ease and everything to go our way such that we're never offended by anyone, and again, we're just right. So we get stuck in that position of trying to to justify our rightness, and we never once go to the Lord and ask him just to check our motives, to check our heart, to make sure that we have done things correctly, to make sure that we have been thinking about the situation right, to make sure that we have been honoring him in the way that we've interacted with these other folks. Just the reality of the fact that we don't know their heart. But again, who would know your heart better to be able to make that kind of evaluation but the Lord? And who would love you enough to tell you the truth but the Lord? 
Again, the Lord knows us perfectly, and he knows what is needed to bring us to the point of conviction. He knows what is needed to address some of those more hidden sins that only come out in the course of affliction. And so sometimes, in that little book where each one of our days are written, he writes in those days of affliction. And sometimes he allows us to endure those days of affliction long because he wants to bring out all of those secret, hidden, foolish sins in our hearts. And he wants to purify them. And that's the only way it's going to happen. And so we should learn to cling to him. What was it? Spurgeon who said, I've learned to kiss the wave that casts me upon the rock of ages. We need to learn to cling to him in those times. Because he knows us well. And he loves us. And he tends it for our good. And he's purifying us. I'll read you just one more quote here. The author says in Psalm 139, David has been reflecting on the omniscience of God. It's led him to ask God to help him lead an upright life. He knows that God will do it precisely because God knows him so well. We know very little. We do not even know ourselves, but God knows us. He knows our weaknesses and our strengths. He knows our sins, but also our aspirations toward a godly life. He knows when isolation will help us grow strong, but also when we need companionship to stand in righteousness. He knows when we need rebuking and correcting, but also when we need teaching and encouragement. If anyone can lead me in the everlasting way, it is God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there be any grievous way in me, lead me in the everlasting way. That is a prayer. That's a prayer that each one of us should commit to our hearts. And we should commit to praying to the Lord daily. My father in the faith used to implore his students, as he was a professor, to walk with the Lord. And what he meant by that was to walk with the Lord in the way that the saints of old were described as walking with the Lord. In the book of Genesis, Enoch was said to have walked with the Lord. Noah was said to have walked with the Lord. Abraham walked and talked with the Lord. Moses walked with the Lord. They were not perfect men. They did not always respond to life perfectly, but they stayed close to God. They walked with God throughout the course of their lives, throughout the joys and the sorrows. They acknowledged him in all of their ways, as it says in Proverbs. They took comfort in the fact that God knew them intimately and personally. They rejoiced in that truth. And they submitted to whatever it is he allowed to come in their lives. Walk with the Lord, beloved. And trust in the God who knows you better than anyone else. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, which is true, which again sanctifies us. Thank you that you know us greater than anyone else. And thank you that we can trust you to bring about our greatest good, even though through the greatest trials that we experience. Lord, you know us, and we trust you to keep us, no matter what we endure in this life. Whatever you ordain for us, Lord, we trust you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.